Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we will look to some positive visions for the future to get away from the doom cycle of complaining about what's going wrong all the time. Some positive visions include rethinking human nature, reimagining our relationship with consumerism, reconsidering how design can work with nature instead of against it, and understanding how cooperation is actually better than individualistic competition from an evolutionary point of view. Sources today include Andrewism, Against the Grain, The Human Restoration Project, The New Humanitarian, The New Abnormal, and Our Changing Climate, with an additional members-only clip from Your Undivided Attention. Who are you? Who am I? What is the essence of humankind? What does it mean to be human? Human nature refers to the fundamental traits of humanity, our most basic and natural ways of thinking, feeling, and acting. Human nature is supposed to be this universal concept that, regardless of nature, regardless of our environmental, social, political, and psychological conditions, we cannot truly transcend. I disagree. There are certain instincts we possess that I might consider universal to humanity, For instance, fear as a means of basic survival, or disgust as a means of self-preservation from disease. Yet not everyone experiences fear or disgust, and what we fear or disgust varies considerably from person to person, place to place, culture to culture. Some people fear the depths of the ocean, others fear the peaks of the mountains. Some people are disgusted by even the idea of eating crickets, for others it's a healthy treat. The balance of our hormones may also play a role in determining how we behave, but we are not slaves to our hormones. We can and do override our base impulses when the situation calls for it. We also obviously have certain shared needs, things like air, water, food, sleep and shelter. We want safety, respect and connection. We seek pleasure, but how we meet those needs vary also according to culture, climate identity. If human nature is just what humans do, then it is a concept of contradiction. Humans hate and humans love. Humans are violent and humans are peaceful. Humans destroy and humans create. Humans form hierarchies and humans tear them down. But when people bring up human nature, particularly in arguments about the viability of liberation from systems of oppression such as capitalism, patriarchy, and the state, They never seem to highlight our noblest features, only our most despicable. Humanity is defamed by humans themselves. To the misanthropes and their ilk, we are all just agents of chaos and wanton environmental destruction. They sweep aside the vast antagonisms of class, gender, and race. They dismiss the distinctions between authoritarian empires and stateless societies, assigning all equal accusation. Capital H-U-M-A-N-I-T-Y overrides the examination of the social relationships and institutions that have forged our present outcomes. So the question persists. Our journey begins to discover what exactly constitutes human nature. I'm not the first person to explore the idea of human nature. Across history and throughout the world, Theorists and philosophers have posited different interpretations of the concept. 
Socrates believed that the life most suited to human nature involved reasoning. His student Plato and Plato's student Aristotle developed a notion of the human soul in the 4th and 5th century BCE that consisted of two parts, one home to instinct, passion and desire, the other home to logic and reason. Aristotle in particular also recognized man as political, meaning able to develop complex communities and systems, and mimetic, meaning able to use his imagination to create artwork. I say man and not humanity because Aristotle saw women as subject to men, of course. Elsewhere, Mencius, a Confucian philosopher in the 4th century BCE, argued that human nature was good, with an innate tendency to an ideal state formed under the right conditions. To him, the four beginnings of human nature's morality were a sense of compassion that develops into benevolence, a sense of shame and disdain that develops into righteousness, a sense of respect and courtesy that develops into propriety, and a sense of right and wrong that develops into wisdom. He believed the development of virtues came from reflection, and if one didn't reflect, they wouldn't develop their moral constitution. According to Mencius, evil came from a lack of reflection and self-development in one's natural direction. However, another Confucian philosopher in the 3rd century BCE disagreed. Junxi believed human nature was essentially bad and that learning was the only cure for the destructive and competitive natural ways of humanity. Later on, the legalist framework of human nature would embrace the notion of it being inherently evil. However, unlike Junxi, they didn't think even education or self-cultivation could eliminate or alter one's fundamentally sick nature. Echoing many of today's proponents of capitalism, 3rd century BCE legalist philosopher Han Fei argued that everyone is motivated by their unchanging selfish core to take advantage of whoever they can, especially when they know they can get away with it. Similarly, Emile Durkheim believed humanity to be naturally egoistic, and David Hume assumed humans were driven by selfishness and emotions and needed society to make them more reasonable. However, Hume also recognized that humans had an innate sense of honor, beauty, and nobility. In contrast, according to Akan philosophy, what it means to be a person is to selflessly contribute to one's family and community. Of course, adjusted for one's level of opportunity. The size or type of contribution matters far less than the practice itself. Further east along the West African coast, the Yoruba held similar beliefs. To be a person is to be substantially dependent on others. The community is the basis for the actualization of one's values and personality. This position can also be found in the Pan-African philosophy of Ubuntu, a form of African humanism developed in the 1950s that sees humanity as a quality we owe to each other. It can be neatly summarized by its particularly iconic phrase, I am because we are. Yoruba philosophy also recognizes that while humanity retains certain activities and needs, the way those activities are carried out and those needs are met are subject to change according to ever-evolving material conditions. Karl Marx's concept of species being was similarly informed by materialist analysis. He argued against traditional concepts of human nature as incarnating in individuals in favor of human nature forming within social relations. To Marx, 
human nature wasn't permanent or universal, but rather always determined in a specific social and historical formation. Humans change their environments, and their environments, in turn, change them. The Raramuri tribe in the Sierra Madres region of what is now Mexico have traditionally believed in Iwigara, the idea that all life forms are interconnected and share the same breath. Even the land itself and the winds that blow through it check in. Obviously, the sheer variety of the philosophies of indigenous cultures cannot be painted with one broad brush, but we can identify certain similarities. Many indigenous philosophies have recognized that we cannot be divorced from our environments. There is no neat separation between human and nature. We are part of the same family. Life can only be viable when humans view nature as kin, all part of the same ecosystem, enhancing and preserving, giving and taking. Anthropologists refer to this way of seeing the world as animism. Because animists believe all beings are related, they heavily regulate their interaction with living systems. For the most part, and asterisks do indeed apply. That means that while they may fish, hunt, gather and farm, they do so while remaining cognizant of the sustainability of those systems. They do so in the spirit of reciprocity, not extraction. They live by the principles of what today's ecological economists would call a steady state economy. Never extract more than ecosystems can generate and never waste or pollute more than ecosystems can safely absorb. The decline of animist ontology has coincided with the rise of capitalism, which has continued to sever our bond with nature, leading to many people embracing the view that human nature is fundamentally destructive. Human presence has come to be seen as a threatening corruption of the natural world. We've become estranged from our role as a species of stewards. thing that I think has been striking about are the ways that the status quo has been justified and the system of capitalism has been framed as permanent and inevitable and no way to transcend it or get beyond it is an evocation of human nature, that human nature is at its root based on a kind of individualistic selfishness, and we'd have to do great harm to each other if we were ever going to live in a more collective way. And hence, you know, the gulag is evoked. You write about the uh, uses that a notion of human nature can be put to. Can you say what you think about human nature and what it does or doesn't constrain in terms of our possibilities? Sure. Um, well, to quote two people I've already mentioned, one is uh, Robert uh, Sapolsky, who said that human nature is not to be constrained by our nature. <laughs> and uh, Noam Chomsky said that, uh, and I quote both of them in, in my chapter on this, is that, um, I say my chapter, by the way, I need to acknowledge my son Daniel, with whom I wrote this book, so our chapter. Um, our chapter on this is there's no defined human nature. That that if Jesus was a human being, and if Buddha was a human being, and Hitler was a human being, and Stalin was a human being, if Martin Luther King is a human being, and Donald Trump is a human being, um, 
then what is the human being? Then what is human nature? So, what is human beings? What human nature? And, and and by the way, in this society, it's very common to say when somebody does something selfish or manipulative or greedy, we say, "Oh, that's just human nature." But what about when people are kind or giving? Do we say, "Oh, that's just human nature"? Why not? The kindness is very common. <laughs> and all of us, when we're kind and open-hearted, we feel much better in our bodies. So why do we identify selfishness with human nature? We evolved as communal creatures for millions of years, hundreds of thousands of years, including if even the existence of our species, Homo sapiens sapiens, can be encapsulated in 60 minutes on a clock then until five minutes ago we lived in small band hunter-gather groups where the communal need determined individual behavior individual thinking and individual feeling so giving receiving supporting collaborating that's what we did we would not have survived as individualistic hostile creatures we would not have survived we could not have lived that way monkeys couldn't wolves couldn't no mammals could. So what we tend to do is to identify behaviors in a certain society with some kind of global human nature. It doesn't exist. What we know does exist are human needs. And what I can tell you is human children have certain needs of warm attachment relationships where they're accepted for exactly who they are, whether emotions are accepted and welcome, where they don't have to work to make their relationship work with the parents, where there's free play, free, genuine, authentic, spontaneous play out there in nature that helps the brain develop properly, which is essential for brain development. If you meet those conditions, you're gonna get human beings that are compassionate, for the most part, collaborative, and they don't think in terms of individual greed as the way to satisfy their need. This society, we don't bring up people like that. So you see a prevalence of behaviors that are selfish and not only are they prevalent, they're even celebrated. But it's a cultural construct. So you can't extrapolate from the way people are in a certain culture to some general idea of human nature. I don't think there's a human nature that dictates how we are. We have human needs. And we have certain conditions that will promote the healthy development of human beings, other conditions that will undermine it. So that's how I understand human nature. We're having a winter membership drive to close out the year. So if you've been waiting for a special occasion to sign up or buy a membership as a gift, now's the time. We're a small team working on a small budget, and sometimes we get tossed around with the bigger ebbs and flows of the podcasting business, and we can't always depend on steady ad revenue, which is why members have always been the most important part of keeping the show running. So just because we've been around for a long time, don't think that we don't need your support, because we absolutely do. For the holiday season, membership is on discount for 20% off. That goes for gift membership as well. So grab that while you can and lock in that price for as long as you keep your membership. You'll get bonus clips and chapter markers in every episode, bonus episodes where the team get together and make each other laugh while discussing important issues, and an ad-free experience all the way around. Just head to bestofleft.com support for details. That link is in the show notes, and thanks for your support. 
In July 2022, Dr. Henry Giroux presented a keynote at the inaugural Conference to Restore Humanity, where he spoke on the topic of critical pedagogy in a time of fascist tyranny. In this keynote, he connects our fading visions of the future to the lack of hope that we can ever actually imagine something radically different from the present. The commanding visions of democracy are in exile at all levels of education. Critical thought and the imagining of a better world present a direct threat not only to white supremacists, but also to those ideologues who narrowly embrace a corporate vision of the world in which the future always replicates the present in an endless circle in which capital and the identities that it legitimates merge with each other into what might be called a dead zone of the imagination and pedagogies of repression. And more simply evoked by theorist Mark Fisher, it is easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And that's a well we have absolutely run dry in our desire for dystopia. We've imagined the world destroyed by AI, by climatological disaster, even by zombies. Judging by pop culture, you could assume we have a preference for annihilation. Stuck in this doom loop, we've created an entire media apparatus that not only imagines ever-worsening and horrific futures, but nostalgizes the past to keep us trapped in existing banal dystopias. In an era of increasingly rehashed ideas, corporations now openly flaunt reboot culture, negating any ability to imagine something new. Nothing comforts anxiety like a little nostalgia haunts The Matrix Resurrections as a 2021 sequel to the nearly 20-year-old trilogy. Escaping the drudgery of futures imagined for us is no small feat. Philosopher Jean Baudrillard believed that our world had become so engrossed in the hyper-real that we are no longer able to distinguish between what is real and what is imagined. Or, as he wrote on Disneyland, It's meant to be an infantile world, in order to make us believe that the adults are elsewhere in the real world, and to conceal the fact that real childishness is everywhere, particularly among those adults who go there to act the child in order to foster illusions of their real childishness. Teaching is the most stressful job in America. 86% of teachers report being stressed, 73% struggle with anxiety, and 67% with ongoing depression. And even amidst the COVID-19 pandemic, these shocking statistics dwarf healthcare workers and other highly stressful positions. So it isn't surprising that so many educators have become jaded and nihilistic about the state of education. Stressed, depressed, and demoralized teachers who are looking for an exit or believe that their classrooms have become a lost cause are less likely to be able to create spaces of joy, wonder, and curiosity for students because at the end of the day, why does any of it matter? The Doom Loop connects a dismal view of the future to lived realities within classrooms everywhere. Underfunded, risk-averse schools are pressured to adopt an empty or scripted pedagogy, a standardized system where the same thing is taught the same way to every student. In this way, the ends justify the means, sold as a back-to-basics way to alleviate teacher stress and improve outcomes by simplifying instruction and assessment standardizing classroom management, and securing higher scores by aligning curriculum with the demands of state tests. With the best intentions, empty pedagogy means to make it easier to produce similar outcomes for all students. But the reality is that it's easier to sell scripted curriculum to a deprofessionalized workforce that lacks the collective power to make pedagogical decisions, 
or even the collective understanding that there could be other educative outcomes worth pursuing. An empty pedagogy eliminates the need for advanced degrees, certifications, and the deep pedagogical understanding that comes from years of experience. Opting instead to treat educators like easily replaceable, low-skill, low-wage employees at the bottom of a technocratic hierarchy. Of course, it also removes the artistry and personal connection that draws virtually all teachers to the profession, replacing purpose-driven professionals with trained technicians, thus perpetuating the doom loop as educators burn out in a profession void of personal identity and the capacity for meaningful action. As teachers burn out, it can be tempting to embrace scripted techniques to make the job easier, but this can be dangerous at the level of the system itself. The more schools come to value an empty pedagogy, the more sterile the classroom becomes. And the more sterile the classroom becomes, the more classrooms become isolated from society. Unable to address the problems of today, let alone the future, content to batch process students with standards and objectives, but rarely in a direction or with a purpose. Of course, young people can find this on their own. But systems that embrace the back-to-basic standardization of classroom curriculum lead young people to have to fight back against the demeaning and soul-sucking nature of school. In this way, schools become a vector of the doom loop itself. The majority of young people also find themselves bored, stressed, or tired in high school. Horrifically, the suicide rate of students increases between 30 to 43 percent during the school year. And as chronicled in Huck magazine, young people are embracing nihilism. One young person states, we are all just little grains of sand on a seemingly infinite beach. And numerous accounts show people not bothering to fight for just causes, such as environmentalism or social justice, because after all, what's the point if the apocalypse is right on the horizon? The promise of a college to career pathway with a livable wage, stable job prospects and a decently sized home, nuclear family and other elements of the American dream have become structurally unattainable. But the article also outlines the growing movement of positive or sunny nihilism. Australian writer Wendy Seifert says that nihilism can be a gateway to a radical decentralization of the self, saying, if you have been forced to recognize that the things you thought were going to promise you a good life aren't available anymore, you look beyond yourself to protect something bigger. She believes that when you embrace nihilism, you can start to recognize what the philosopher Nietzsche said about rules, laws, and morals. They're all social constructs. You can begin to reimagine yourself and the world around you in entirely different ways. And it becomes liberating to change the world because you recognize that all of it is, well, made up, as one young person puts it. It doesn't matter to me that it will all return to nothingness eventually. It exists simultaneously with my existence. And I get to climb trees, run about, and swim, all thanks to the Earth. Human existence is beautiful, even if it's all for nothing. I think what I did by accident was fill a hunger people had for a vision of things going well despite the awful situation that we're in. There aren't that many books like it, 
and actually Malcos is one of them, but it's a basically it's an empty ecological niche in our cultural imagination. You say, oh, I want to read about things going well in the year 2050. I'll go to that shelf in the bookstore. <laughs> it is empty. That shelf is empty. And so people, when they find it, they begin to share it. The shelf is empty. That's interesting. But also the few books that are on the shelf, the wider science fiction shelf, are often written by a very specific slice of the population. So if we talk about a bit the politics of science fiction and whose vision of the future is most valued, science fiction is often dominated by white men, um, sorry, Stan, but with no particular social justice agenda, which is not your case. And the voices that are a bit more marginalized don't often have the the ear when it comes to science fiction fans um, that they might hope for, despite a really rich tradition of people from, as I say, more marginalized communities trying to write themselves into the future or, or reimagining futures that might better serve them. Um, and Afrofuturism, which really centers Black history and culture, is, is an example of that. So maybe, Maka, is science fiction any less susceptible to oppressive power structures than any other field? Well, I mean, when we're talking about science fiction here, what we're talking about is publishers right? Because those are the people who decide not what gets written, but what gets to readers. You know, I, I do think it is changing um, somewhat. And we're seeing that reflected in uh, what's getting out. It's there's still a long way to go, obviously. But I think, if you know, what's even more regressive than what's coming out in print is what's being made into TVs and movies. And that's unfortunate, because you know, that does actually reach, sadly, <laughs> uh, way more people and get more mo way more money funneled into production. Uh, and I think that's actually, you know, a big part of the problem, because when you're spending a lot of money to make a show, it also means that there's a lot of people who have an interest in saying, oh, we must make sure this is profitable. And we're going to guess what's going to be profitable by looking at what was profitable last year. And that doesn't always work very well. And it also leads to very slow change and sometimes really boring shows, because those stories, again, affect how people think about the future, what they think is possible, what they're afraid of, what they hope for. To come back for a second to, to print, while well, we're starting to see more marginalized voices being published, uh, the area that I think is really lacking, um, especially when we think about it from the humanitarian perspective, is translations and people from, from other countries, other parts of the world, and trying to get more of those voices, you know, as we talk about global futures, as we talk about global government, we really need to be doing more more of that, more translation, more publishing. And it's it's hard to get that done in the US. Uh, that's one big issue that I think we need to, to keep looking at. You know, Octavia Butler is having a moment now, and she's been dead a couple decades. And when she was actually publishing those books, she was quite marginalized. So there's such a desire for those kind of narratives that there's some backfilling. People go back into the tradition. And I really hope people start reading Joanna Russ, for instance, as an incredibly powerful, hilarious and angry feminist voice in science fiction, one of the great stars of her time. And Ursula was more famous the longer her career went on because of a desire for those kind of narratives. So uh, science fiction can have everything in ideologically. It can go from hard right reactionary QAnon type conspiracy theory set into the future to uh, communist uh, and far left manifestos of liberation for all humanity. It's just the same as any other form of literature mm -hmm. in terms of its ideologies. But if you're looking for 
positive visions of a mutual aid future for the world, then indeed science fiction is the right place to look. Then you have to kind of go hunting and pecking to get past the same old, same old ray guns and lasers and blowing things up and spaceships zipping around, which is typically war stories or stories of feudalism. And, and a lot of fantasy is, of course, straight feudalism, the kings, the servants, the troubadours, the dragons. It's all a straight medievalism taken as a kind of an escapism or a metaphorical vision of the present where you wish you could have a magic sword and just chop their heads off. <laughs> so uh, a lot of escapism in all of literature, in all of art, and when you try to have committed or activist uh, literature, then as Malka said, you run into the business right. of publishing. Like, who's going to buy this? When they're looking for escape and you write a, a gritty story of humanitarian work, who's going to buy it? Very few, because people read and watch TV to escape their current trapped reality rather than engage and understand it. So you have to perform some pretty convoluted uh, judo tricks and Cirque du Soleil type jumps to make the kind of things we write about entertaining and and get it through your industry to a readership that enjoys it even though they're looking for escape. One of the escapes would be nice is to imagine that things could still work out. So it could be that my novel Ministry for the Future is just as much a fantasy as a Game of Thrones or, or Harry Potter because it it isn't clear that we're going to be able to run the table and put all of the bricks in place in time to keep from having a universal crash. But I'm very interested in, in say, the refugee camps. So Ministry for the Future has about maybe six or eight plot strands. And one of them is refugees. It's pretty much Syria, a country that's falling apart, and they try to get they get to Switzerland, and then they're in a refugee camp for twenty or twenty or thirty years, and then they get out, and they're Swiss citizens on a kind of Nansen passport. It it takes up at at least fifteen to twenty percent of the text and ministry for the future, and nobody talks about it. Nobody. What can you say? It's an intractable situation. As a life, it's boring, even though I was intent to write it, because the only solution I can see to the in oncoming humanitarian refugee crisis, climate refugees, is a holistic sol solving of all the problems, at which point you don't have millions of people wandering the earth homeless and without much in the way of an ability to control their fate. So, but when you say nobody talks about it, you mean in the reviews of the book, that's not a part of the book that is popular. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Not discussed. Let's talk about central banks. Let's talk about the carbon coin. Let's talk about geoengineering. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about eco-terrorism. Let's talk about anything except for a life spent in the camps. Mm. And so the, how do you go about popularizing a book that is essentially about, well, it's both a, a cynical and optimistic book at once, I suppose, but you know, a book that is essentially about the future of human suffering. How do you go about making that something that people want to think about and understand? Well, some people go into survivalist fantasies. Oh, if the world fell apart, then my life would suddenly be more exciting, which is not true. The other thing would be simply to do creative nonfiction and live the life, go in there, interview people, and write that story up. And there are some great accounts 
out there in the nonfiction literature. How do you find a plot that tells that story? Well, the way I did it was to make sure that that was part of a larger global story that you had to remain interested in. Like, these are the stakes that are involved in solving climate change, is these people will have their Nansen passports. You could imagine the mig- – I'm thinking about your specific issues – The the involuntary migrants, the refugees, the climate refugees could be a workforce to quickly decarbonize the planet. A full employment plan where governments gathered together and said, look, we need lots of workers. We have lots of people. Could we put them to work in decarbonizing fast so that we decrease the climate emergency? Well, it would be hard, but it wouldn't be impossible. Can we match the solutions to the problems, which is sort of putting people in the right places and giving them agency and giving them expertise? It's a messy problem, and and it's bearing down on us hard. And and when things bear down on us hard, people tend to freak out and go back into fantasy land. I want to pick up on some of those things because I think there's a, a ton of interesting stuff in there. I have a very small and brief refugee subplot in my second book, Null States, and basically there's there's a war going on and there's a bunch of refugees and there there's a affair for them where all the governments from around come by and try to promote their governments as the place where these refugees should go because in the world i created population is power um, almost mm. as much as information is and so countries they're not countries, but the the, the governments, there's these entities, these political entities want people to choose them and want people to come to them. Hmm. Um, <laughs> I would like to think that's imminent. I have hope for it happening someday because generally studies show that refugees, migrants are good for the host countries they land in, in a variety of different ways from economic to social. But there's, there's such a powerful narrative against that right now, unfortunately. Um, Mm -hmm. But I have hope that might change. And in the meantime, you know, I hope that by writing about it in that way, it might trigger at least a few people to think about how ridiculous the current system is, which turns all this research on its head and said, oh, this is a huge problem that you have to worry about. Having these these visions and presenting them can be really useful for, for even if you don't get to that place of like all the countries coming and having a fair where they're like, look at our wonderful government, come to our city, even if we don't get that far. Maybe we can get to a point where it's not go away. Governments should be working a lot harder for our allegiance. There are so many elements of, of your writing that is truly extraordinary because it isn't just imagining a post-apocalyptic world. It is imagining also what is possible. One of the elements of your writing that I find that travels throughout is this intermingling between technology and plants, between how we are utilizing the topography, our plants, the air, water, all of these things, and infusing that with technology, your buildings are living, your homes are living, the ships that Binti travels on is a fish. And so where does that imagination come from because it feels like, oh, this is where our innovation and what it means to be building quote unquote green 
should be, could be, if we continue to be attached to extraction and violence and mining and things that harm us. So where does that come from? Yeah, that's that's really good because that's like the core of my imagining when it comes to the future. Like one of my basic philosophies is that nature is the greatest technology. That's the foundation of everything for me. Nature is a, the greatest technology. Therefore, and I've always felt that like human technology, if it went more along with nature, we'd be greater. Mm-hmm. It's like going with the wind as opposed to against the wind. We could move faster. We could do more if we went with what nature already already was constructing because nature is the greatest technology. So that's always been the standpoint that I come from. When I think about technology, when I think about what do I want to see? And, and then also looking at things in a not so dystopic way. You know, I, I feel like a lot of the way that we, a lot of the ways that that humanity looks at technology to begin with is already dystopic because we're like we view nature as something to control, something to jail. And I think that's where we go wrong. And that's like at the foundation of a lot of the technology that we create, that controlling aspect that need to be the ones, the God of nature, which is, it just doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense to me. And so I just feel like if we kind of addressed that within us, and, and a lot of it is due to ego, a lot of it is due to the need to control comes out of an, is fear. Mm-hmm. The need to control something is fear. So it's like, I think that if we address that aspect in us, and then kind of took it from there. I think a lot of the, a lot of the technologies that we create would be very different. And so like when we talk about Binti taking off, leaving the planet in something living, I know exactly where that idea came from. Cause I, when I think about space and space travel, what would I want to be in? I would not want to be in this old dead metal thing. I want to be in something that's alive. I feel more, it, it just, it, I'd feel more secure and safe in something something that's alive. And so like this idea of space travel and body and moving around in that way, in that fashion, I think that's where all of that comes from. I just feel like um, nature is the greatest technology. If we come at it from that point, then you you get living ships, you get living buildings, you get homes that are made of plants that are growing. And that those those plants are not necessarily things that we can control. There are things that we will, we move with. So if it wants to go a room over there, then we figure out, oh, this is how, yeah, that's really, that's my philosophy. I love it because your idea, your vision of space and the future to me is a space that I actually want to be in, right? It is one that there is a coexistence and a co-mingling between humanity and nature and technology. And I feel as if it's like, we're at this extraordinary tipping point in our reality where every headline is about artificial intelligence. Every headline Mm -hmm. is about the end of humanity. And there is something that I gravitated to during the height of the pandemic in your stories where I was just like, I need to get the fuck out of this place that seems impossible and move to a place that seems possible. And, you know, part of what is so beautiful about your stories too, is that there is both something that is ancient and futuristic 
elements about them, the tools that your protagonists are using are things that you yourself have researched and found throughout going and traveling in Nigeria and other parts of the continent. And I want you to talk about this one piece because I am so obsessed with it when you posted it on your Instagram, which was the Astrolab. Oh, yeah. So, can, yes, can you talk about this magnificent Astrolab, which I thought, I, I'm going to tell you, I thought that you created out of your imagination. And then when you posted it, I like went down a Google rabbit hole. Yeah, there's so much. Oh, my God. It's basically the first GPS. It's the first GPS. It is a tool that helps us to navigate the world. It's an ancient tool. This is not new. And I was obsessed with it because what I learned about, I learned about it when I was in Sharjah, which is in the United Arab Emirates. They were talking about this device that was perfected by this woman. And and first of all, like the idea of, you know, an Arab woman Mm. in ancient times perfecting a technological device that reads the stars. I mean, come on. (laughs) The minute I heard that, I was like, oh, there are times where like as a writer, when I hear certain things, certain I I learn certain pieces of information, pieces of history, pieces of things that exist where it's like something starts vibrating in my head. And when I learned about the astrolabe, I'm like, oh, my God, this is a big one. And so like I immediately became obsessed with it. I went down the rabbit hole that you just Mm -hmm. talked about going down. And I was like, why do I not know about this? Why? How how did I not hear about, you know, how is this just coming into my orbit? And so, so yeah, I mean, that's, and so then that went directly into the writing and the philosophy behind Binti, this ancient, basically it was like talked about in a lot of the research that I was reading that it was the first GPS. And I love the idea of the old and the new. I'm obsessed yeah, with yeah. that idea of the old and the new and tools from the old and knowledge from the old and the new that one is not better than the other and that they can play off of each other and they can co-mingle to create something greater. Like I'm not all about leaving the old things behind, but I'm also not all about acting like new things cannot exist and that some of the old things need to be left behind. Like it keeps coming back to Nigeria. It comes back to the way I started writing science fiction was like seeing the juxtaposition and the co-mingling and the interaction between the ancient and the modern and how they are not always directly in conflict, how sometimes they are at play with each other. Sometimes they are married with each other. The astrolabe was just a, a great example of that once again. And it's like my favorite subject. So when I discovered it, my head like just blew up. I bless you for that discovery because then my mind blew up and I was like, I need, I need to understand and now I want one. <laughs> so I also want to talk to you about this idea in your Akata series of the in-between, the wilderness, this in-between of the spirit world and our conscious human world and what it means to bring also in these African traditional ritual practices intermingling with sci-fi, intermingling with this idea of magic and where this in-between, this wilderness came from for you. The wilderness, it's like you're bringing up all my themes because they're all... All of these are connected, all of them. The wilderness is the spirit world, right? But also one of the Igbo tenets 
And it's not just Evo, but I'm Evo. So that's where it comes from for me. The mystical and the mundane coexist. So like in a lot of Western ideas, they're, they're separate. So you have to go to these places. They're, they're, they're complete, but the, the, the mystical and the mundane coexist at the same time. It's almost like the ancient and the modern idea. They're commingling. And, and, and that's when I talk about African futurism, that's something I need to be understood because it is a worldview. That is the reality. It is not magic. It is the real. That is a way a certain part of the world thinks and sees the world. That the mystical and the mundane coexist. There are mystical things happening all around us. That's normal. So you take that idea, you take that point of view, and apply it to science fiction. So therefore, the mystical can appear in a science fiction narrative. That's what African futurism is. out into the high desert surrounding Taos, New Mexico, and you'll find beautifully unique houses that look as if they were crafted by the elements. These are earthships, dwellings that are the brainchild of architect Michael Reynolds, who in the 1970s sought to build a completely off-grid house that could withstand the extreme cold and heat of New Mexico. Earthship design principles focus on core tenets like passive heating and cooling, using recycled and local materials, and fostering self-reliance through integrated greenhouse gardens. And all of these methods are implemented in ways that look right out of a solar punk drawing. The foundation of an earthship, for example, is built with recycled tires stacked on top of each other with dirt tightly packed into them. This not only provides structure, but as earthship dwellers like to say, it acts as a battery. The sheer mass of an earthship's walls soak in the warmth of sunlight during the day, which the roof is perfectly angled to let in the right amount, and then the wall slowly emits that collected heat out into the room during the cold of the night. As a result, some earthship owners claim to not need any external heating sources. The earthship is built around living with and embracing the natural world. It does so with technologies that are tangible and readily available. It uses other people's trash, like old tires and glass bottles, and the dirt around them to build something that's appealing and comfortable. And it does this in a way that ties people to the land. But to live in an earthship is not some Eden. There are drawbacks. For one, recycled tires do eventually break down, releasing toxic gases into the air. Reynolds and Earthship builders claim that plastering the walls around the tires protects homeowners from this off-gassing, but other builders claim that you would have to be constantly sealing up cracks to have peace of mind. And claims of independence from the water grid through rainwater collection are dubious in desert climates like Taos. And if you're hoping to heat your house through sunlight in an Earthship in a cloudy area, think again. While Earthships certainly aren't perfect, they offer up promising ideas of how to integrate nature into everyday living. They are a solar punk answer to the question, how can we live comfortably with the natural world? They won't work everywhere, but individual pieces of them 
can be integrated into housing anywhere. Imagine homes using passive heating and cooling systems so they don't have to run the air conditioning or heating all the time. Imagine building gardens within a house. Imagine incorporating filtered rainwater into our plumbing and imagine building a house with as many local and recycled materials as possible. The Earthship shows us that there are already ways to live well and lightly on the land right now. And it does so in a way that melds low-tech and high-tech ideas into a beautiful structure. This is solar pump. Finding the appropriate technologies to build aesthetically stimulating and livable dwellings that tie us tightly with the landscape. Along the Hudson River in New York, Sam Merritt runs a zero-carbon shipping company. No, he doesn't run a fleet of electric trucks, nor does he bike. Merritt ships local goods up and down the Hudson River by sailboat. That's right, in the age of massive gas-powered cargo ships making globe-spanning trips, Merritt has created a fossil fuel-free cargo company based on sailing. One that is at the whims of the weather and the seasons, but makes the buyer appreciate the ebbs and flows of the natural world around them. This epitomizes a solar punk future. Solarpunk envisions a world in which the technologies we use help us to appreciate and tune into the rhythms of the planet. And sailing in the 21st century has the potential of making that happen. Merit shows us that it's already feasible to do on a small scale. And when considering that sails and ropes for ships could support a thriving hemp farming operation that sequesters thousands of tons of carbon with each crop, sailing cargo locally is an appealing possibility. But sailing in the 21st century runs the gamut of low-tech rigs like Merit's schooner to futuristic technologies that are beginning to see their first real-world tests. Right now, engineers and cargo companies are in the midst of wrestling with the polluting reality of international cargo and are on the hunt for high-tech solutions for big shipping. While Solarpunk emphasizes the local, it can still embrace global travel and transport with emerging technologies, like retrofitting cargo ships with column-like sails that reduce fuel use by possibly as much as 30%, or future-thinking cargo ships with retracting rigid sails. A Solarpunk future that involves international cargo recognizes the need for these high-tech sailing solutions because they are appropriate for their high seas context. But what's important is that these high-tech cargo ships are not viewed as a silver bullet. In a regional or local setting, hemp sails and schooners are a much more suitable and nature-reliant solution. So while a solar punk future might envision rigid sail cargo ships traversing the open ocean to facilitate a thriving hemp trade between continents, a smaller canvas sailboat might bring those goods the last mile to markets. But at this point, you might be thinking, wait, wouldn't sailing mean that there'll be delays? Won't everything take a long time to get to me? To that, I would say that solar punk does not prioritize Amazon Prime-like convenience. That kind of convenience is something people in the Imperial core will have to learn to do without. It comes at the cost of the planet and the people forced to work grueling conditions and hours to get that package to your front door in one day. Solarpunk envisions a world wherein we don't have to crush people and the planet in order to find comfort in our lives. So yes, Things might be a bit slower, but I would gladly slow down my life if it meant that my community and my surroundings thrived. 
Although Earthships and sailing cargo do exist in this world, they aren't prevalent. Looking around, I usually see the plumes of smoke rising from cargo ships, not the undulating waves of a sail. And I see concrete buildings instead of earth-packed dwellings. So what's holding us back? There is no simple answer. There are a huge host of reasons, but when it comes to these beautiful solar punk worlds that artists around the world have begun to render, I can't help but think about, you guessed it, capitalism. The profit-centered global economy we've built has driven us to create technologies that, for the most part, function to expand margins and make more money for the capitalist class. Ideas and inventions that can't compete in the market, regardless of whether they are zero carbon or build community health, are pushed to the margins. Merit's sailboat cargo company is a novelty because it can't compete with the monopoly of Amazon Prime or industrial shipping companies like Maersk. Solarpunk dares us to dream of a world outside of capitalism because even though these technologies do exist right now under capitalism, they are not widespread or quote-unquote successful. The labor required to ram hundreds of tires full of dirt for an earthship, for example, would bleed someone's bank account dry, while the wind nature of a sailboat means that it can't provide the regimented convenience of one-day shipping. Combining low and high-tech solutions, Solarpunk demands a future built not on profit, but instead on community and a strong relationship with the natural world. So instead so of focusing, instead of on, focusing technologies on technologies that make the most profit, profit Solarpunk urges us to seek out ideas and tools that deepen our interpersonal relationships as well as our ties to the earth beneath our feet. We've just heard clips today, starting with Andrewism, looking at why our general conception of human nature is wrong. Against the Grain explored the theme of human nature even further. The Human Restoration Project looked at the relationship between our education system and nihilism in the youth. The New Humanitarian looked at the benefits of sci-fi with a positive vision for the future. The New Abnormal looked at sci-fi that incorporates traditional knowledge into the future, and Our Changing Climate looked at architectural design techniques that can be an inspiration for building in a way that works with nature rather than against it. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from Your Undivided Attention looking at the relationship between culture and evolution and the benefits of working cooperatively and not always in competition with one another. But what Darwin realized was that even though selfishness beats altruism within groups, groups of altruists will robustly outcompete groups whose members cannot cohere. And so the second part of that statement is altruistic groups beat selfish groups. Everything else is commentary. And so self-preservation is a good thing. Self-dealing is not. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, this is Bud from Idaho. 
I was just listening to your climate change episode number 1594, and I'm very interested in some of the geothermal options. I especially was impressed with the idea of using existing oil drilling resources, I guess you would say. But the scariest part of it was the idea of geoengineering. There's two main things that I'm concerned about. One was that what you concentrated mostly on was reflecting solar away, and my fear there is probably two or threefold One is that my uh, freshly installed solar array might not work as well, and I may have to expand that. I would imagine that they would take that into consideration, and that would be one of the first things they'd consider. The other two things that concern me about that are uh, how long would it last, or would it be reversible? And then the other is, it sounds like, if I'm understanding what he said, this would cause more acidification of the oceans and more acid rain. So I suppose it's all on a spectrum. If the water's cooler, maybe it won't be quite as acid. I don't know. But the, And then finally, the, uh, the last thing that concerns me about solar reflection, I guess, is that the, I'm assuming this, I don't have any actual knowledge, but really anything to do with geoengineering would have to be done on such a scale that any unforeseen results, any unforeseen consequences would also be on a global scale, which is uh, very frightening. But it was still a very informative episode. Keep up the good work. I'll talk to you next time. Thanks to those who call into the voicemail line or write in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record or text us a message at 202-999-3991 or send an email to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to Bud for calling in with his concerns. I will do my best to address them all, I think. Uh, Not that I can explain them away. Uh, because there are some real concerns here, but I can at least add some clarification. So the first was uh, reducing solar energy efficiency, like on Bud's personal solar array. I can't speak to this one directly, but I believe we are talking in terms of reducing the percentage of solar radiation in the very low single digits. Of course, all of this is subject to change and needs more research, etc., But I believe that they're looking at only reflecting in the range of 1-2% to of the sun's radiation hitting the Earth away. So yes, that could impact solar energy generation, but not hugely. Then there's the question, how long would it last and is it reversible? And we are certainly getting into the the crux of the matter here. In terms of it being reversible, that's that's like a yes with a giant asterisk. (laughs) So the sulfur dioxide that would be injected into the stratosphere naturally dissipates in only a few years. So if we tried to do this for like a year and we didn't like the results, then yes, it is reversible in a fairly short amount of time. But the question of how long we would choose to make it last is a stickier problem. In theory, we should only need it for as long as it takes us to decarbonize our society But 
even if we do it really well, that's going to be probably a decades long process, right? And because the capacity of the atmosphere to trap heat is continuing to go up, if we were to start solar radiation management, we really wouldn't want to stop it once we'd been implementing it for more than just a few years. Because if we were to stop, there would be a shock to the system as the shading effect wore off in a short amount of time and the full impact of the warming would be felt. It would be sort of sudden and could be dangerous. So if we do go down the path for more than a few years, we'd really want to be totally committed to the project and avoid going off of it to avoid the shock effect that could be dangerous. But now for some good news, solar radiation management does not make ocean acidification worse. So I think there was a bit of misinterpretation there. Ocean acidification is caused by an overabundance of carbon in the atmosphere. So we're already causing that problem. Solar radiation management prevents as much heat from entering the system from the sun, but it doesn't increase nor decrease the levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere or how much of it gets absorbed by the oceans. So the point that Mike was making is that solar radiation management isn't a cure-all, and he gave ocean acidification as an example of, like, see, this isn't going to be fixed by it. And so we should all understand that using solar radiation management is not an excuse to continue to do anything other than decarbonize the economy as quickly as possible. I think there was a double negative in there. No one should say, okay, now we don't have to decarbonize as much because you know we're shading the sun, so it's okay. We don't have to worry. No, no, no. Because ocean acidification is still a major problem, we need to deal with it regardless. Now, as for acid rain, that's a problem when sulfur dioxide is in the lower atmosphere, like we get from dirty cargo ship fuel emissions. The idea for the intentional geoengineering using the same chemical is that it would be put into the stratosphere, so you get the same shading effect without the direct air pollution that impacts people. At least that's the idea. As always, more research needed. And finally, uh, concerning the unintended consequences that would be felt globally, that's definitely what further research would attempt to work out. And yes, some of it would be unavoidable and negative, but that's why we need enough information to be able to make a comparison between bad options. We already know that the status quo is a really bad option. So what kind of problems are we going to create with this other idea and how do they compare with the terribleness of the status quo? But on that note, I did hear one pretty good idea that addresses multiples of, of these concerns. It was suggested that the solar radiation management program should only aim to reduce the warming of the planet by half of our actual goal. So say we're headed for a two degree increase over comfortable temperatures. We shouldn't reflect enough sunlight to reduce the warming by two degrees but by only one degree, and here are the benefits. One, it doesn't stop anyone's motivation to decarbonize because temperatures are still rising, just slower to give us more time to react, but still, we need to react. And two, if we aim to reduce the warming by only half, 
then hopefully the unintended negative consequences would also only be half as intense and therefore more manageable. Which really brings us back to the need for international cooperation and agreement on a path forward, and that can only come with more research and information to make informed decisions. And of course, the best case scenario is that we do the research and then we end up not needing to use it after all because of a combination of other factors like new high-tech geothermal power that no one predicted until recently. Fingers crossed. That is going to be it for today. If you have any more thoughts or questions to add, please send them my way. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and LaWindy for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who already support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support. You can join them by signing up to Day and it would be greatly appreciated. You'll find that link in the show notes right along with a link to join our Discord community where you can also continue the discussion. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com